If I had to define myself by a style of music, it would be EDM sea shanties. Are you, are you recording now? Yes. was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Hello, and welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing chapter one of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the long-awaited Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We finally got here, officially book three, uh, for us book five. And we're here. We're we, here. We made it. Um, I, of course, am Susan off in America, um, also known as Kristen. I'm the pretty one. And this, And this is my co-host. Uh, I'm Uncle Harold, and uh, I'm a very up-to-date and advanced person. Yeah? Are you a vegetarian, a non-smoker, and a teetotaler? No. <laughs> Um, to how then, many points of that? Uh, well, anyway, also also known as Chris. Uh, Do you wear s- a special kind of underwear? Only on special occasions. But, you wear uh, a very special kind of underclothes. We won't get into that on this podcast. It's a PG-rated one. Um, so anyway, welcome to book five, Kristen. Hi, we, we're here. As we you said, it. we made it. We did it. We're on the downslope of this podcast. And Three we, more books. We might actually have to start thinking about what we're going to do next. I, I've been told that people will pay for it if we do uh, Lord of the Rings next. <laughs> uh, You've been told, huh? Yeah, we, we might have a fight on our hands because we've been told we have to do Lord of the Rings and we've been told we have to do uh, Percy, Percy Jackson. Jackson. Yep. So we gotta we gotta decide what direction we're going there. Uh, this said though, you you've brought up that we've been told this. So before we dive into Voyage of the Dawn Treader, do you want to respond to some of the? Um... Yeah. So we we got a a very well thought out email from friend of the podcast Nathan uh, about some of uh, a bunch of our points that we covered in the last book, which was of course Prince Caspian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to bring a few of those up in response because I, I felt like it warranted being brought up on the podcast and we could address a few of those things. Yeah, he had some great uh, points. I yeah. really, yeah, I wanted to bring them up as well. All right, so some great points. Um, so first on the docket, I have his whole, his whole email here. All right, so first point, he says, um, this book seems to not have a strong biblical one-to-one uh, ratio. I wondered if you might dive into the why of that in your wrap-up. So with that said, I I do to a certain extent agree with that, but I also feel like this is very much like the calling of Paul on the road, where Caspian is Paul to some extent, mm-hmm. and the other church leaders are sent to... You know, there's the the one who the one who has the dream of the animals and the sheet and kill and eat. Yeah. Um, and is sent to Paul to heal him of his blindness and mm-hmm. Saul becomes Paul. Yeah. All of that. I don't know, that's the only that is the only biblical thing that I could try to draw a one to one on. Yeah. Um 
But at the same time, yeah, no, I, I definitely don't feel like there's, like, like I don't feel like that's a great um, direction to go with it. Um, but yeah, I, feel, I, I do find it interesting because we have, it, we discussed a lot even how Aslan doesn't do much. He enables other people to do things. And it almost feels like Aslan in this is, is echoing or will later be echoed in the Horse and His Boy book of the the Holy Spirit role mm-hmm. where this is this is post Aslan coming and dying and restoring and all of this and then coming back and restoring again but in an empowering of the people way as opposed to a active direct action way yeah uh, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that, and I, I agree with Nathan's point about this being, like, extra-biblical allegory and him talking about the the idea of, you know, this is what happens after the Jesus story. Yeah. But I feel like there are moments in this which are pretty one-one. They're just kind of disjointed. Um, and I would, like, what stands out for me is, uh, you know, the end of the story where Aslan goes across the countryside with Bacchus and, like, free all the children from schools and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um what I think of when I see that is very much like a Palm Sunday kind of allegory of like, you know, Jesus riding into Jerusalem okay. and, you know, that kind of thing. And like, he's riding in on a donkey and like Salinas is riding in on a donkey. And Literally, like the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like this, this idea of, you know, not necessarily, this isn't necessarily like revelation and this is like the rebirth of, of the world. This is just like a triumphant entry. Yeah. And and Aslan's having his triumphant entry into the country. Like the work isn't done yet, but this is a taste of like what's coming. Yeah. And like, yeah, this is foreshadowing for the end, basically. Yeah, and I and I don't fully disagree with that. We also don't have any information at this point of like whether Aslan stays and continues to have an active role, whether he just disappears, whether anyone who's there will ever see Aslan again. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the book, we don't have, at the end of Prince Caspian, we don't actually have any information about what that's going to look like in Narnia. We have no future for Narnia besides we've set up the king and everybody's leaving. Yeah, you we, know? Might, we might find out in this book. Yeah, we yeah. might find out in this book, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's definitely just like an interesting... Uh, moment there that it does not echo directly what we had with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have, at the end, kind of like an Aslan comes and goes as he pleases moment. You know. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We at least had some resolution as to whether or not the Narnians are going to be continuing to interact with Aslan at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At least it feels like there's some. Yeah. I don't know how much. But this book doesn't... Is Aslan here to stay? Well, probably not, because that's not That's in... what Aslan do. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's that's worth thinking about. Uh, but we did, we did touch on how the theology of this book is very different than C.S. Lewis's theology beyond that, but also right. how it does connect to his theology of, like, hell and how, like, the Telmarines would not be forced to stay in Narnia. Yeah. So we had some interesting takes going both directions on Lewis's actual theology, yeah. as we know it from Lewis's other writing. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah so worth worth thinking about like sorry there's there's a bunch of points here that i wanted to address so i'm just trying to get through these okay. uh so we don't like belabor the this episode um he says relatedly i was hoping you would also dive into how the book functions as a sequel since it's very much book two in its composition uh there are a number of sequel tropes throughout the uh throughout that get obfuscated when reading the book chronologically retelling the same story in a new framework having walk-on roles for characters from the first book etc any thoughts on that i think um i think there's definitely a I, I don't, I, I don't know, because, like, a direct sequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is how it was written, mm-hmm. I agree, there, it is definitely a sequel. Yes. But it doesn't feel, like, reading them in chronological order, as we've done. Uh-huh. It doesn't feel sequely. It doesn't feel super sequely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um... So I didn't really think about it in that way. So do you have anything that stood out to you as a particular sequel trope? Because, I mean, I'm sure if I sat and thought about it for a minute, I would come up with something, but... I mean, not necessarily. Like, I didn't really go into it feeling that, like, like intellectually I know it's a sequel, but at the same time, to me, I don't feel... Uh, like, I agree with you. It doesn't feel very sequely. But if you just, just picked like... up this book and read this book... Yeah. Who's Aslan? Well, there is a certain amount of Aslan being established as this mythic goddish figure. Yes. But not even, like, it's not super engaged with in this text directly. Because yeah. he doesn't do anything except heal the one woman. Mm-hmm. The the nurse. Yeah. Um. So that said, like, Aslan is an empowering force rather than a direct interactive force throughout this whole book. Mm-hmm. Um. The witch, like, who is the white witch? If you're going into this book as a standalone, the idea that the white witch existed is only briefly touched on, and yeah. her relationship with Aslan right. is only briefly touched on, and not enough to make it feel like the intense moment that that scene is where they're trying to summon back the witch. Um, so that, that, but also having read them in chronological order... We have this idea of Jadis from Magician's Nephew being the witch, uh-huh. being summoned back here. And, like, it, the overarching role of the witch throughout the series is really intense. Like, the fact that this is still a thing. Uh-huh. And I feel like it benefits from being read in chronological order for for the, the fear factor of the witch potentially coming back. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say... It, it's if we look at it as a sequel it's disappointing to me because we go from the lion the witch and the wardrobe to this which is so far removed from you know the events of the first book that we don't get the satisfaction of bringing back any like anything from you know book one yeah we don't like, get to see the badgers we don't get to see tumness like the beavers sorry we don't get to see the beavers yes. we don't get to see tumness we we have this this very disjointed view of Narnia, even to the point where, like, the bridge has been built and stuff like that. So the only walk-on roles are the kids showing up and being like, hi, we're kings and queens here. Yeah. And Aslan and the witch. Yeah. Like, other than, like, the whole, the moments we have of Caraparavel, like, the ruins of that being destroyed, we don't, 
get to see any of the aftermath of what the rain was because it's just so far removed chronologically from you know yeah that book so like if it were like a true sequel which i guess it is i don't want to say if it were a true sequel i guess i want to find out you know why the beavers are all gone from narnia like you know give yeah, me because a, that doesn't make any sense you know have a have give us a scene where we visit the grave of tumnus like that would uh, be so nice um yeah like you know we we did get the story of like the mice which was fun like we have the, yes. the backstory of why the mice are talking mice now and why they're all noble uh which is good but yeah um tell you know tell us about the construction of aslan's howl and like you know what that was all about yeah because, why like, was that built it's like there's a temple over the table like who built it why um anywho uh yeah so i'd be i i would feel disappointed in that as a, uh, strictly as a sequel so that's why i would like to look at it as its own standalone book or part of the series as a whole like yeah uh and so Nathan says, also related, how is an author allowed to pivot mid-series? If we consider this as a sequel and the future books adjust from there, it seems like Lewis pivots away from the ideas you liked about this book and back into the things that you didn't like about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the first three books, quote. Is Lewis pivoting here? I mean, to a certain extent, the focus of the story changes because the first book is following the Pevensies and this book is about Narnia. Mm-hmm. As opposed to about the kids. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is that he's referring to that we didn't like about the first book. Uh, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. I'd have to go back and re-listen to our episodes. Uh, yeah. Nathan, if you want to clarify that point, feel free to trick tweet at us and we'll bring you up in another episode. But I, I feel like that one well, we would need to have a little discussion about. Or if you want to come back as a guest when we wrap up this one, you can bring up all these points. Uh just calling people out in the podcast now. <laughs> um, and then he had just a couple of uh, side questions here at the end. He says, does the character of Judas in the Bible fall into the stupid evil alignment? <laughs> is is this the fate of all traitors whose stories are told by the winning side? I mean, I do feel to a certain extent that saying... I think that there's a certain relational aspect mm -hmm. that re that is required to be like, oh, it was just stupid evil as opposed, like, because someone who is a traitor being written by the winning side is going to be a villain. Uh-huh. But someone who is a loved character who failed because of something dumb, like mm -hmm. Edmund or like Nickabrick, yeah. we didn't have victory fast enough for him, so he he fell. Yeah that's the stupid evil like that's being like oh he messed up uh -huh. because of he was dumb yeah so i don't know uh i don't know in my in my alarm in my alignment chart uh that i make for all the fandoms oh, you yeah. know and and the christian fandom uh-huh <laughs> um i don't know i've always thought of judas as a very tragic character and i don't think i'd put him in the evil uh, yeah, alignment at all necessarily and i know that's that's heresy uh and i'll be excommunicated i'm, Darn. I'm sorry pope uh <laughs> the pope listens to this podcast um, um <laughs> isn't judas saint isn't he canonized i would have to do research before i made any statements about that because i don't know a lot about the uh the saints catholicism um but anyway no i i, I wouldn't say judas is an evil character at all uh, I feel like he 
you know, in history is very nuanced and the story is very complex and like the way you look at Judas changes dramatically based on what your personal theology of free will happens to be. Yeah. And you know, if you're if you're one of those uh Calvinists not that we not that we talk ill of them or anything, but if you're a Calvinist, like you'd be hard pressed to see Judas as a bad guy at all because he was just doing what he had to do. Like this was what he was destined to do. So yeah, I mean that's that's a deep theology conversation that we could get into, but I I don't know if I would classify him as stupid or evil or either one. Um, and then the last question I wanted to bring up was Nathan saying, uh, "Are James Bond movies island hopping stories?" I mean, I'd have to watch more <laughs> of them. Uh huh. Um, I've only ever watched two James Bond movies, and they were both Pierce Brosnan ones. Yeah. Uh, I would say some are. I mean, I haven't seen remotely all of them. I've seen a few, uh, and I would say, you know, there are some that are island hopping. There are some that are very much not and very much more confined stories like Casino Royale. Uh, but yeah, depends. Uh, but that being said, that's a great segue because I adore island hopping stories. I adore adventure stories, and I'm really excited to get into this book. So... We are talking about Voyage of the Dawn Treader, chapter one. We are indeed. How do we start these, Kristen? When we start these episodes, besides replying and rebutting to all of Nathan's points, we will, (laughs) in fact, uh, do a summary of the chapter. So as we each read the chapter, we each choose five sentences from the chapter that we attempt to create a summary using the chapter's own words to mm-hmm. tell the story of the chapter. So would you like to go ahead and do your summary first? Sure. Here is my summary of the chapter. The story begins on an afternoon when Edmund and Lucy were stealing a few precious minutes alone together. Still playing your old game, said Eustace Clarence, who had been listening outside the door and now came grinning into the room. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they got their balance... A great blue roller surged up round them, swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. They were still quite near the ship. She saw its green side towering high above them, and people looking at her from the deck. But Caspian hustled them on, and in a few minutes Lucy found herself passing through the door into the stern cabin. That was a rough one. Anyway, I changed changed the color of my ink, and I can't read when I do that. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What a uh, reason for poor performance. Yeah. It's like, sorry, I failed the test. I used the wrong color ink. Yep. it's There's not enough contrast against the page. Okay. All right. Go on. Do your summary. All right. Here is my summary. We only had one sentence in common, if I believe. Wow. My eyes correctly. The story begins on an afternoon when Edmund and Lucy were stealing a few precious minutes alone together. They were in Lucy's room, sitting on the edge of her bed and looking at a picture on the opposite wall. Eustace jumped up to try to pull it off the wall and found himself standing on the frame. In front of him was not glass, but real sea and wind and waves rushed up to to the frame as they might to a rock. There was a lot of shouting going on from the ship, heads crowding together above the bulwarks, ropes being thrown. 
But who is your friend? said Caspian almost at once, turning to Eustace with a cheerful smile. There you go. I feel like our summaries were very similar. Yeah. Uh, I, well, in. what happened in this chapter? Yeah. They what? sat in a room. They fell through a picture. They got on a boat. <sighs> yes. there's. But a... it was a really long chapter. It was. For having that small of an amount of actual plot points happen. Uh, yeah, I do feel like there's some interesting things to bring up. Uh, first off, uh, before we even get started, I do want to bring up the dedication in this book, as we do uh, when we do our first chapter of all of these. And this is dedicated to Geoffrey Barfield, who I looked up, and, you know, I'm an uneducated swine for never having heard of him. But How dare you? I know, but apparently he is a pretty big deal, um, at least to Lewis. Um, so Geoffrey Barfield, uh, if you look him up, is actually Owen Barfield. I don't know where Geoffrey comes from because that's not his middle name either. Maybe it's a nickname like, you know, Jack was for C.S. Lewis. But Owen Barfield was his actual name. He was born in 1898, uh, same year as Lewis. They went to school together. He was a fellow author uh, and called the first and last of the Inklings. Uh, and he was one of the people that was instrumental in founding their writing group. Uh, apparently he was very, very influential on both Lewis and Tolkien to incorporate myth and fantasy into their writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he convinced them both of the value of myth and allegory. Uh, so he was a big deal there. Uh, he was one of the people that Lewis calls, uh, you know, basically a, a cornerstone of his conversion and was uh, very influential in converting Lewis from atheism to Christianity. Interesting. Um, and yeah, they were very close friends for super, super long time. Uh, Barfield lived all the way up until 97. He outlived all the other Inklings and to the ripe old age of 99. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was an author, like, did not write a lot of stuff. Uh, you can look up his works. Uh, he was, you know, did a lot of, uh, philosophical work. He did a lot of poetry as far as actual novels go. I think he only published two, uh, that aren't super well known. But, yeah, really, really big deal in Lewis's life, so. Okay. So this being Lewis's third published children's fantasy book. Yes. He dedicated it to him. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So, yeah. So that was fun. Uh, but now to actually get into the book here, I also did some background information on the timeline here. Have you and... skipped over the map entirely? You haven't even talked. Well, I there's feel like a the... map of the, of the ocean, and yeah. there's also a map of the boat. I only have one map. Oh, you don't have the boat diagram? No, I've only got the ocean map. Oh, I've got to show you the boat <laughs> diagram then. Because mine starts with the ocean map, uh -huh. and then the next page, with the dedication to Jeffrey Barfield, mm -hmm. has this diagram of the ship. Oh, fun. Which actually has all of the different parts of it listed and detailed and identified. It's like an exploded drawing. They have a hen coop. They wow. do. <laughs> I mean, that's important. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, so in the timeline here... Uh, the children are slightly, slightly older. We have, you know, two of the Pevensies. We have Edmund and Lucy coming back. Yes. Surprise, surprise, with their Where's cousin. Peter? He he is off studying with uh, Professor Kirk. What happened to him? He, he's poor now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but Edmund and Lucy are a little bit older. Edmund is about 12 in this. Lucy's, Lucy's 10. Eustace is 9. So that's the ages that we're working with, according to the official Narnian timeline, which I was able to find. Okay. 
Um, and yeah, uh, so basically the Pevensey's parents have gone off to America. Uh, Pevensey's are too poor to take all of them. So they Well, took they've gone Su- off to America because Mr. Pevensey has was, a teaching opportunity there yes. for 16 weeks or yes. something. Lecturing over the summer. They took Susan because she was pretty, I guess. Um, <laughs> because she was the one who would get the most out of the trip. Uh, and like, but yes, there is also a line that says all of the grown-ups found her to be very pretty. Is that just implying that they're trying to find her a husband in America? Grown-ups <laughs> thought her the pretty one of the family, and she was no good at schoolwork, though otherwise very old for her age, and Mother said she would get far more out of the trip to America than the youngsters. Uh-huh. Uh, which we'll bring up later, because I think that line is interesting for a couple of reasons. But Susan's in America with the parents. Peter's off studying, studying with the now poor and destitute Professor Kirk. Who lost just his, lives in a cottage. Yep, lost his big old house somehow. Uh, maybe we'll go into that in our baseless speculation section. Absolutely. Um, whew. Uh, but there's a boy called Eustace. Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost, almost deserved, deserved it. it. This is the line. Like, this is the opening line. When people, like say, oh, what's an iconic opening line for a book? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know. It was a dark and stormy night. Mm-hmm. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. These are the three lines that come to my mind immediately. Like, that's it. If you tell me to think of an opening line from a book that has ever stood out to me, it's those three. Uh, if he, I don't know. Top three for me, like the ones that immediately sprang to mind were Dark and Stormy Night, uh, opening line of the Gunslinger, uh, the man in black fled across the desert and the Gunslinger followed. Um, and then... Oh, the building was on fire and it wasn't my fault. That, that one was good. <laughs> I was also going to say the first line of The Martian, which we can't say on the podcast. Oh, but, yes, absolutely. But was fantastic. Um... Yeah, those are those are what spring to mind for me. But this is a good line, and it, it's uh, to me it, it seems very influential of uh, a series of unfortunate events books. Okay. Like that 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 would be a line that was was right at home in that series. Yeah, I uh, I, I I feel you there. Yeah, like a, a precursor to. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. Yeah. That writing style. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. He his parents called him Eustace Clarence. He called his parents Harold and Alberta. They were very uh, up to date. <laughs> very very up to date modern people. Uh, like Kristen said, vegetarians, non smokers, teetotalers wore a special kind of underclothes, which is a weird detail and it makes me think like, is this is this like Lewis's treatment of Mormons? Um, is it like is it, are these Mormons? Are they Jewish? Like what is what is this? Yeah, I don't. I, <laughs> I'm not sure who this is. I'm not sure who this is talking about. I would need to know more about society in 1950s England for to see like maybe Lewis is parodying a specific group of people here. Yeah, um, I don't know. But it, it's a very weird way to introduce these people. Yeah, also, I don't know enough about the culture of this time frame of the writing to be in in England. Yeah, to be like, who are these people that he is absolutely like? Yeah, and calling I thought, out. I thought Mormons at first, but like I feel like at the time Mormons were still like a very insular community in America, and I'm not sure how familiar Lewis would be with them, because like they weren't re- that well known at this point. I don't think. I have no but, idea. Um. Anywho, we'd have to do research. We should always. 
We always say we're going to do research and we never do it. We should actually start doing that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, more than halfway through the series. Um, but it, it, he opens up with uh, introducing the character of Eustace as, as this very non-agreeable, unlikable kid. Yep. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have any friends. He likes dead animals, uh, like some kind of weirdo. He only likes books if there are books of information and very boring. So he has have... no imagination also. That's pointed out where he he talks about how he wouldn't be able to imagine something. Yeah. Because he just doesn't know how. And I did want to read this uh, because it calls back, I think, to the previous book. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises and model schools. Does this remind you of the Telmarine children? Yeah, and it's just like, this is a thing for Lewis. Whenever he talks about kids in school, he describes them as fat. Like, Lewis and fat kids, like... Kids in school are fat, yeah. obviously. That's that's what we didn't like about Edmund at first. He was fat, and that's why he was able to be tempted by the witch. <laughs> Yeah. To get candy. And like this is this and is And betray his siblings. This is more of Lewis's like personal thoughts on the the evils of the education system. Yep. It's like it's making our children fat. Apparently. Um and he disliked his four cousins, the Pevensies. Yes. But as we said before, they're coming to stay with him because parents and Susan are off in America. Peter's got his own thing going on. And so Edmund and Lucy have nowhere else to go for the summer but to the cousins' house. Uh, and, you know, Eustace is kind of excited about that because he gets to bully them. Yep. The nine-year-old okay. gets to bully the 10 and the 12-year-old. Uh-huh. Which apparently... Which... Because as guests in his house... Yeah. He's, he's got the rights there. They are not yeah. under guest rights. <laughs> apparently not. Gosh, in every book we just have to bring up, uh... <laughs> Dresden. Some, something about Dresden, don't we? Every time. Um, anyway. Um... And I did want to go back to that uh, description of Susan being in America because it says, again, grown-ups thought her the pretty one. Uh, and though she's no good at schoolwork, which I thought was an interesting turn for her character because it seems like Susan is always, like, the quiet, bookish one. Yeah, but she's the logical one. Yeah. She's been like that. But also, like, Narnia has brought her out of that to a certain extent. So maybe that is a turn for her character because I agree. She's the one who's like, logically, this doesn't make sense. Logically, she's got to be lying, you know, and she's appealing to this kind of educational system that she's been brought up in with logic. Uh-huh. But, uh, but here she's not doing great in school, which I, which I thought was interesting. But somehow she would get more out of the trip to America than the young ones would. But would she need to be good at school because she's just a woman needing to get married off in the 1950s? <laughs> no, the, our women don't need no book learning. Uh, <laughs> you can cut that off if you want to. <laughs> we can't hold a map in our heads because we've got something in them. Uh-huh. Oh, and so Lucy and Edmund are hanging out together, uh, trying to get away from the annoying kid. And they are staring at this painting. Which that... was a gift to their aunt from somebody that she couldn't offend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she doesn't like the picture, which is why she hid it in the guest room. But it's a painting of a Narnian ship. It's absolutely a Narnian ship. No questions asked. So who painted this? Good question. Is, is the painting magic? Is the frame magic? Because we've talked about the different forms of magic and passages between the worlds. Mm -hmm. They get into Narnia through this painting. Is the fact that it's a painting of a Narnian ship the magical element, or is the frame made out of some magic wood 
like the uh, wardrobe was. Possibly. I, I, I got something there that we can get into in baseless speculation, so I won't spend too much time on that. I did skip over what was a very, very important line, though, that we get out of the way uh, in the first part of this book. Most of us, I suppose, have a secret country, but for most of us, it's only an imaginary country. Edmund and Lucy were luckier than other people in that respect. Their secret country was real. So Lewis is definitively saying here, Narnia is a real place. Yep. Period. First yep. time that happens. Like, it's not, it's not, he very much says it's not a dream, not a game. See, but that said, he's also said it's real by saying that they lost the coats. Yes. He's said it's real by they lost the light, uh, the torch. Yeah. Like. But I, I think it's important here that he directly says it, just being like, no, stop your BS theories about Narnia being like a state of mind. It is a real place. Yeah. So we got to shoot down those ideas, you know, unless the author is dead, as Kristen uh, is fond <laughs> of saying. Uh, anywho, we established that. And my question about the painting was, uh, you know, Aunt Alberta doesn't like it, but they see this Narnian ship. Is it just a painting of a Narnian ship? Is it just a painting? Is the painting just a painting? Are the curtains just blue, Chris? Yeah. Yes, possibly. But what does Aunt Alberta see when she looks at the painting? Does she see a Narnian ship? Well, she probably sees a ship that's painted mm -hmm. to look like a dragon. Yeah. She probably doesn't know it's an Arnian ship. She doesn't like it, mm -hmm. I mean, I was which just... means that it's repulsive to her, be maybe because there's magic in it, maybe yeah. because she doesn't have any imagination. Maybe. It's like, is the painting in this frame like, you know, the the hallway in the, the Navidson's house in House of Leaves? Yeah. Like, is this... <laughs> Is this, is this something that you have to desire something out of to see anything there? Uh, but yeah, I thought I thought how the painting worked was was interesting. And like the question of, you know, if it is an actual painting of an Arnian ship, who made this? Like who has been in Narnia that has seen this before and made this painting and found its way into our world? See, but it is a, it is a painting of a ship that was given to her by someone she couldn't offend. Mm-hmm. Which means that it may have been painted by that person. Yeah. And we could do some logic leaps and say maybe it's Kirk. Maybe it's Uncle Andrew, you know, back from the dead. <laughs> or we could just say it is someone else. There are other people in the world who've had interactions with Narnia. Maybe yeah. it's a descendant of one of the Telmarines from one of the islands. Yeah. And because timey-wimey nonsense. Like, yeah. who knows? Like, Yeah. Interesting. Uh, anyway. Maybe it's Polly's grandchildren. So, possibly. We, uh, we spend a lot of time describing the ship. And by the way, if you're going to read this story at all, and you don't know already, you'd better get it into your head. Port is left, <laughs> and starboard is right. When you're facing the bow, yes. Yes. And, uh, that's, that's what we have to establish. Because Lewis is, like, apparently a stickler for ship terminology. Yes. Just being like, if you're going to read this book, you get this now. <laughs> In oh. chapter one. <laughs> um, so they're looking at the painting, and then magic happens. The ship has a purple sail. Mm-hmm. It's a royal ship. Yes. It's Never in my memory have I imagined this ship having a purple sail. Says it right there in chapter one. I know. <laughs> and I, I have no memory of that. Oh, man. Oh, here's here's the line about Eustace. He was far too stupid to make up anything himself, and he did not approve of that. 
That's the imagination line I was looking for. Yeah, which I think is an interesting juxtaposition for Eustace's character. And, you know, on page one, we open up saying, like, he's very, you know, he's very bookish and he reads books about information and et cetera, et cetera. But also, he's dumb. Yes. Which, like, are not usually two things that go hand in hand. Because, uh, well, and again, it's because <laughs> of Lewis's stance on education yeah. and how, how education should be run. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just this idea that childhood should be filled with imagination, and the youngest of these children is the one who's most into reading informational texts, as opposed to fantasy and adventure stories. He's not fat, though. He's not a little a fat little schoolboy. So. Well, he hasn't been described in that way, but he is described by Ed as that record stinker. <laughs> When he says he has to share a room with him. At least you've got your own room. I have to share a room with that record stinker, Eustace. Yeah. Um, and he tries to come up with a, lim- a limerick that doesn't actually work. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, and then the painting uh, does some magic stuff. And they fall into the water. Yep. Uh, you know. Eustace jumps up and tries to knock it off the wall because he sees it moving and mm-hmm. he doesn't like it. He wants it to stop. Yeah. And when he jumps up to try to knock it off the wall, he lands on the frame itself. Whether he's shrunk or it got bigger, we don't know, but all three of them end up there. Yep. Falls into this. Now, m- my question is, which of them is actually being summoned to Narnia if, if it is just one of them? Because they all see the waves moving at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it's Eustace's effort to jump and the other two trying to stop him. Yeah. That lands all three of them on the frame and then eventually falling into the water with the waves. Also, nothing happens with the painting until he comes into the room. True. So, is this... They've been sitting there staring at yeah. it. And it's not until Eustace... So, there is a reason for Eustace to go to Narnia, apparently. Yeah. Huh. That's something we can take from this first chapter. We can we can assume. Anyway, so they all get up on the frame. They fall into a real ocean, the same very same ocean that's in the painting. Uh, Lucy has apparently gotten better at swimming. Good, which is I'm glad. I was worried. <laughs> she kicks her shoes off as it's important. Mm-hmm. This is your you kick yep. your shoes off if you land in water. Yep. This is going to be my sign off because yep. we finally got some more fatherly advice from uh, old Papa Lewis. <laughs> if you fall in some water, kick off your shoes. Off your shoes. It's the first thing you should do. Gosh, that was going to be mine. I need to come up with another sign off now. Jeez. <laughs> mm. Okay. Um, so they fall in and you know they're, they're kicking around in the water for a little bit. They get rescued. They get pulled onto this ship and... Who do we meet on the ship? Some blonde-haired boy jumps into the water uh-huh. to help get them out. Ermagerd, it's Caspian. <gasps> hey, look, he's here. Um, we, you know, it just says he's some years older than Lucy. Uh, we in don't know. In the previous book, we established that he was about the same age as Susan. Yeah. And so he would be 14, 15 now. Maybe a little, yeah, something like that. I mean, we know time doesn't work the same way in Narnia, so we don't necessarily have to keep the same. True, true. He could be. Yeah. But it says that he's a boy. Yeah, so still not a, a man. Yes. So he is somewhere between the age he was in the last book of 13. Yeah. 12, 13. And like and 17 or 17 so. 17 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Uh, but he's got his own ship now, I think. I think this is his ship. Well, maybe. he's a king and <laughs> yeah. it's got a purple sail, so. You would think. Uh, they get pulled aboard. 
Uh, and Yipa is there. And is there, but but not before like Eustace complains a lot and he gets seasick. And he eeps at the sh- at the at the mouse. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which offends Reepicheep deeply. He does. Uh, Eustace asks for some plump trees, vitaminized nerve food. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which sounds like something out of like a very dystopian novel. Um, <laughs> It's a, was an interesting direction to go. Uh, complains, gets shocked at the talking mouse. And here we actually, like, this is the first time we actually describe Reepicheep's dimensions. Before, in uh, Prince Caspian, it just says, he's a mouse. This one no, we no, actually... No, it said that he was, a, he was the size of a terrier. Okay. But it this says one... in the last book he was the size of a terrier. Okay. This one he actually says, like, two feet high. Like, it's a big mouse. That'd be a that'd be an enormous rat, let alone yeah, let alone a mouse. <laughs> um, also, two feet high, but like that's a big terrier. <laughs> Actually, and I the, think I think Pattertwig was described as the size of a terrier. One of them was being described as the size of a terrier in maybe, the last book. Maybe Reaper Cheap's gotten bigger. Like maybe I, don't know. I mean Aslan got bigger. Yep. Uh, but he shows up. Uh, yay, Reaper Cheap is back, and he's uh, you know decked out in his royal regalia. And comes and bows before the queen and, you know, threatens to kill Eustace. Yes, but <laughs> the like... queen's needs of being warm mm-hmm. are, will belabor, like, matters of honor must wait the needs of a lady. Yeah. Uh, and she gets hurried away into uh, the cabin and, you know, Caspian's private quarters. She's just like, no, no, come get out of those wet clothes. He He's, runs into his room, gets some clothes, and says, Lucy, you can have this room. Yeah. They don't have any ladies on the ship. No, nope. no women's clothes. Um, and anyway, she immediately falls in love with the cabin, and we have, like, long descriptions of the cabin. And she feels cetera, as cetera. though she'd already been there for weeks. The yeah. rocking of the ship didn't bother her. She is right at home. Yep. She's right at home there. Uh, gosh, and that's basically it. That's that's really all that happens. I mean, we can't say that nothing happens in the chapter because, like, hey, more people get pulled into Narnia. They almost drown. They get pulled onto a boat. Caspian's there. Like, stuff happens. But we have set up for the rest of the book nicely in one succinct chapter. Mm -hmm. We didn't waste time. Yeah. And this has sequel energy. Yes. Like, we have Caspian coming back. We got Reaper Sheep coming back. They're bigger and older now. This has big sequel energy. Yeah, this has big sequel energy. That BSE. Yeah. And this is a, you know ostensibly a book that we're going to get to find out what happens like immediately following their actions in Prince Caspian. Which you're stoked about. Yeah, like we get to find out what they actually did in the world, which is the first time that we've ever revisited the actions of a previous book. Did you expect Prince Caspian to be in this book? Uh... Or King Caspian, sorry. I keep calling. (laughs) I know. Wrong title. Yeah, you gotta be thrown in the dungeon for that one. Um, No, I didn't know what to expect going in. I, I knew Edmund and Lucy were coming back. Yeah. Um... So, I mean, yeah, cool. I, I'm not surprised by it. Okay. Um, anything that you wanted to touch on in the chapter? I forgot pretty... to mention that the title of the chapter is The Picture in the Bedroom. Yes. That's that's about it. That's uh, that's really all, all I had to say. Which, uh, actually, good chapter title for this. Yep. Shocking. Um, yeah. Anything else you wanted to As throw out? As or... previously stated, no. All right. I'm glad we, you know. We've, we've thrice established this. Thrice said and done. Thrice said and done. Uh, so that being said, should we go into our 
little rewrite segment? Sure. All right. Um, so every time that we read through the chapter, in addition to taking sentences out of the book to create a summary, we also take sentences out of the book to rewrite and create a new story using the words from the chapter. Um, we will try to create a new story by chopping and screwing, which is the name of the segment, Narnia mm-hmm. Chopped and Screwed. Hashtag Narnia Chopped and Screwed. If yep. you would like to share yours with us on the social medias. That said, I will go ahead and do my rewrite first, since you did your summary first. Go for it. What on earth's that? I like it very much. They're silly and vulgar and and sentimental. You're not wanted here, said Edmund curtly. But it really couldn't be helped. Interesting. Okay. That's a, that's a whimsical little take. I know. It, it leaves some mystery there. Are, are you describing the, um, hang on, what are they called? There's just an early description of the duffel puds. <laughs> Chris has read the chapter titles of the book yeah. and been extremely confused. Yeah. Are they silly and vulgar and sentimental? And, and sentimental, maybe. <laughs> they might be. Well, yeah. Um, so, disclaimer. I've never read this book before. The only book I had read previously to doing this podcast was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So this is the first time, and I just went in and read through chapter titles, and I thought duffel puds was a funny word. And I mentioned that aloud to Kristen, and she made her face at that. <laughs> and she's just like, well, reading, rereading this as an adult is going to be very interesting. So I'm a little apprehensive about what the duffel puds are all about. Yep. But um, <laughs> That said, though, you also read that chapter title number seven out of 16 is, is how, how the adventure this, ends. How the adventure ends. <laughs> yep. So, so, I don't know. Do we have two books in one? What are we doing here? Yep. Uh, but I'll go ahead and read my rewrite now. But who is your friend, said Caspian almost... Oops, sorry. I reversed. I, I have that line crossed out. <laughs> no, I reversed order, so let me restart that. I put arrows here to let me know that I reverse the sentences. And I never pay attention to those. See, I numbered them. <laughs> One, two, yeah. three, four, five. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Last of all came the stranger, a golden-headed boy some years older than herself. But who is your friend, said Caspian, almost at once, turning to Eustace with his cheerful smile. Caspian, gasped Lucy as soon as she had breath enough. He's only longing to be asked. She felt quite sure they were in for a lovely time. I really like that. <laughs> That's a fun little love story. Yeah, I got to do my love story to start I out with. I like it. Yeah, so so my, my idea for this is like, you know, what if, what if Lucy goes to America instead and meets Caspian, you know, at, Aww, you know, at some university her father's I teaching like at. I like it. Yeah. So that's my fun little story. Um... So, we should go ahead and go into our last segment here. Yes. Baseless speculation. Baseless we, speculation. And we have some legs here. Uh, to to our newer listeners, this is a segment we started in the last book. Uh, like, as I said before, uh, I have not read most of this series prior to doing the podcast, so I have no idea what's going to happen. And so I like to baselessly speculate based on the information we have, and that's much, much easier in the beginning of the book when it we is. still have all of the plot threads open and available to us. So here's what we got here. We know somehow Diggory Kirk lost his house. Um, yes. Uh, he made some bad investments. The money's all gone. Maybe he's in gambling debt. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's definitely a story there. Um, and 
in the midst of losing his house, like, what does one do when you, like, have a manor and you lose your house and, you know, you're moving into a small cottage? You, you go and have give an est- away your artwork. Yeah, you give away your artwork. You go and have an estate sale. You sell all your crap. Um, and, you know, maybe. I'm not going to say this painting of the ship is one that he had in his house that he gave to you know his cousins harold and alberta because i don't think the timeline works out for that very well okay um because like that was a thing that they've had as a wedding present and we know you know this is proper society they've been married at least nine years yeah longer than yeah yeah so that doesn't you're right you're right you're right so this doesn't work out as like a thing that he gave to them um Maybe it is. Maybe he gave it to him before the house got foreclosed on. It's like, he's just like, yeah, this is in one of my dozen bedrooms that I don't use. Here, have this. But at the same time, we know from, you know, Diggory's experience in Narnia, he was there, like, right when Narnia was being created. Like He didn't see any yeah, ships. Yeah, he didn't see any ships yeah. at all. Like, nobody had built these. Valid. So, somebody out there in the world uh, has seen ships of Narnian design uh, and has made this painting. And, you know, that and doesn't... it certainly wasn't the Telmarines who were afraid of water. Yeah, it wasn't the Telmarines. They hated they hated sailing. Even though they were descended from pirates. Uh, and I want to say, who are... Except uh, the ones that we mentioned in the very beginning in the last book. What were they called? Like, the Seven Lords or, like, whoever? Yeah. Like, there were, there were seven nobles who, like, were set out to sea. And were not like, afraid of the water that yes. went off. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe one of them found a way back, or you Ooh, know, fascinating. Uh, and, found a way to this world. Yeah, maybe one of them went and you know ran into the emperor over the sea, okay. and you know he got offered the same deal that Aslan offers, and it's just like he's just like, hey, you don't belong here. You want to go back? And they're like, why the heck not? Okay. And you know he goes back into our world. You know, sets up shop somewhere in England, because why not? Um, you know, can't can't get Narnia out of his head. Paints pictures of his ship yeah. that he uh, that he no longer has a uh, captaincy over. That's not a word uh, <laughs> that he's no longer the captain of. And uh, I don't know through through sheer luck and happenstance. This is somebody who's an acquaintance of Harold and Alberta. And luck and happenstance, absolutely yeah, not with like, Aslan not, involved. Not, not Aslan involved. No. So you know, we we have some speculation as to where the painting came from. I'm I'm gonna say the painting is itself magical and it's not the frame, because yeah, okay, um, that that wouldn't make sense if you're, yeah, I don't know. Okay, um, I get it. So there's that. Uh, gosh, I don't know. There's not. Why is why are Caspian and Reba cheap on the ship? Where are they going? What are they trying to find? Well, you're going to find that out in the next chapter. So, okay. I mean, speculate <laughs> well, spe- all you want. Speculating. But... Uh, my speculation, uh, I mean, this seems to be pretty soon after Caspian takes the throne. Uh, I mean, his first couple years would obviously be try- like trying to, trying to see to the rebuilding of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And being like, all right, got to go in and undo all the damage that the Telmarines did. I got to set up new infrastructure for the Narnians and like make diplomatic relations with them and all this kind of kingly stuff. And so it would be a few years before like he got to leave at all going anywhere. But like at a certain point he gets curious and is just like, hey, they, they set up the Emperor of the Lone Islands. What are those? Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, well, if I'm in charge of them, I better go and actually like see who's living there. Yep. So he gets on the ship and goes off to, to see the Lone Islands or something. Okay. Which, 
I, I feel like it's barely baseless speculation because there's a chapter title that's just called The Lone Islands, which is chapter three. So, well, there you go. That's what I'm assuming. But uh, yeah, my baseless speculation here is that one of the seven lords of the Telmarines made its way back to Earth and made this painting. So, there you go. Baseless speculation. <sighs> cool. Anything you want to add to that before we. No, because I remember enough about this book that, <laughs> that I'm having can't. a really hard time not directly responding to what you're saying. Yeah, uh, and that's the last thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we close out this episode. Um, you have thoughts about this book and feelings. You remember? You, you, I feel like you remember this book better than any of the other ones. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, despite this not being your favorite one, it's the most memorable. Is there a non-spoilery reason you can give for that? I mean, it's it was my dad's favorite book. So the, you, and you so heard this I one read it. I've read it multiple times. The first time that I read it was really hard for me to get through, mm-hmm. and I didn't remember certain parts that the second time I read it had a huge emotional impact on me. The same stuff that Nathan referenced in the in the guest episode that he was on when we talked about this book. Yeah. Um, that same content that he said really impacted him was the stuff that was almost life-changing to me as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that had a big impact on me the second time reading it. Also, the ending for a, a specific character as well. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, non-spoilery, I had a very uh, emotional connection to this book because it impacted me in a real personal way. But trying to read it a third time, I remember just like giving up because (laughs) it was so annoying the way that I was like, oh, this is such a scripted journey. Like, I don't know. I didn't love it. Well, all right. I gotcha. Well... I'm excited about the next chapter, or what is it called? We're going to, uh... On Board the Dawn Treader. the Dawn Treader. Chapter 2 next week. Which we find out the name of the ship that we're on, which we Ooh. don't find out in this, uh... You know, if you didn't read the cover of the book. <laughs> yeah. Anywho. We gotta post a picture of my particular version of this book. I already Kristen, did. Okay. Kristen laughed really hard. There's a big sad dragon in reading and Reapacheep. So... Yep. It's a crying, a, crying dragon. There's a dragon at some point. Yep, apparently. Cool. I mean, the ship is a dragon with green wings. Is the ship a shape changer? All right. Uh, anywho, you want Which to take a shot? is the kind of dragon that you have a drawing of is a greenish dragon. It is. All right. There's some more baseless speculation. There's my baseless <laughs> speculation. Your cover art is going to be what the boat turns into. All right. There we go. There At least Reaper Jeep survives. Yeah, he makes it. He's friends with the <laughs> sad dragon. He's either that or he made the dragon sad. He was just being rude. He did that out too. of character for Reaper Cheap. I know. I know. He, he he's just rude to big things. I mean, Wimbleweather just got it in the last book. <laughs> this time it's the dragon. All right, you want to go ahead and take us out? Sure. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. As usual, if you are interested in interacting with us on social media, giving us your rewrites, your summaries, your thoughts on what we said wrong or did wrong or haven't talked about, you can do that at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Chronically Pod on Twitter, and you can email us at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to give us money because you're cool like that, you can um, do that at patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast. we still got to record our riff tracks for uh, Prince Caspian, the film, for that one. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> so that said, if you ever fall into a body of w- water, 
kick off your shoes first. Order. Order! And... And if you're going to read this book, left side is port, right side is starboard. Get it into your head. Right Right now. Because we are not going to go over this again. <laughs> we are not yep. going to go over this again. Uh-huh. Get it into your head now. And, and don't forget to drink your Vitamix nerve food. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. Cheers. Bye. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they, and just as they thought they got their balance, a great blue roller surged up toward them. I'm gonna do that one again. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they got their balance, a great blue, ro- a great blue roller surged up round them, swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. Easy for you to say. Uh huh. The, the the idea that the white wish the idea that the white witch existed is but Caspian hustled them but he Cas- hustled them but Caspian <laughs> he, he hustled them okay but Caspian Cas can't talk today I can't so yes your problem was you tried to get me into just sea shanties and I'm all I, I love sea shanties <laughs> But I don't just like listen to them. But I am all I am here for EDM covers of sea shanties. My mother told me someday I would. We've already done this one. I know. I'm just testing the mic. Because I couldn't remember the lyrics to the Wellerman.